0: Okay, welcome everyone to another episode of our podcast series, The Edge. Um, Today we've got Yevgeny Karam, uh, really happy for you to be around and and for for joining us on this podcast. Obviously, we spoke recently on a a CSA panel for Zero Trust, and I thought we got on so well, I thought it was worth asking you along. Um, I think the first question, the same as I ask everyone else that comes on this podcast, a similar format, is kind of, how did you get into IT and security and kind of what road have you walked?
1: Jay, John, very, very happy to be here. Very exciting podcast, and I'm literally flouting to be here. So the, this is a good question because I was thinking about this. I actually listened to all the podcasts before joining, so I wanted to make sure what you, what you guys ask and what you guys talking about. It was still it was already on my to-do list to listen. It was a very good excuse to listen to everything. And as you may know, I'm a big uh, kind of enthusiast of SaaS, SSE, cloud, networks. so it was very, very good to listen. Majority of the folks started in cybersecurity through IT. And I was always telling people that I started because I went to work in Checkpoint as a QA analyst, okay, not QA analyst QA researchers. But it's actually not true if I go a bit deeper. I was learning in college and in school for computers and electronics. And later on, joined the Navy to be basically a technician. And I fixed computers. Moved people networks, learned Linux in the Navy. So my IT started there. And during the Navy, Israel Navy, I realized that I don't understand everything what we're doing. You we just tell us, do this, do that. I was like, but why? And I was under a very misunderstanding why every ship has the same IP address for, this, for the same laptop. <laughs> like, I don't like this. And I went for training for MCC 2000 during this time. And I learned DHCP and DNS and Active Directory. And I realized how stuff actually work. And then realized what's the problem the Navy will have when they're going to connect the ship back together and they're going to have some collisions. But this is what everything began in, in the way for me. Also, in the Navy, I was kind of messing up with one of the laptops. And during this time, I didn't understand what I'm doing. I tried to put that mean password multiple times with an effort. I got locked down. And then somebody called me, what are you doing? Do you know anything? Like, no, 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 you did. And this was the, my first public speaking engagement where I need to explain to the people in my base what I did and why I'm not supposed to do this. Then I finished the Navy, was trying to figure out what I'm doing next. Almost went to work at the police. I'm glad I didn't. There was actually a project there to help people, the interrogators to move from paper and pen to computers. I didn't go there, I don't remember exactly why, and I went to work for Checkpoint in Israel. I worked there for two years. This was the beginning in a way of SASE because my project was to check UTM, the first beginning of unified trend management for Checkpoint. It used to call R57 to actually understand inspection of SMTP, HTTP, pop 3 and the entire idea of deeper inspection just beyond the firewall. It was the beginning.
2: When I started in this space, um, my background was in network infrastructure, um, not so much uh in SDN, and SD WAN, those those types of technologies. Um, but zero trust, SSE, SASE. Um, interestingly enough, uh the, the first kind of podcast that I dived into to kind of understand what uh, you know, uh these uh, new companies are doing was uh, yours, uh, you know, security architecture. And uh, it was a great conversation because you brought in all the different vendors, uh, you know, Palo Alto, uh, Zscaler, Axis, just a number of vendors. And um, it was kind of my first exposure to this. And I'm curious, what got you started in podcasting?
1: So after Checkpoint, I moved to Canada and I started to work in a company called Horjava Group where I worked for 15 years, did a variety of stuff and just quickly get to the point of the podcasting. And I started with installing Checkpoint Then managed a team of professional services people, the installer of the technologies in Palo Alto, Cisco, McAfee, and you name it, pretty much everything. And for a number of years, I managed teams of people in endpoint security, DLP, network, a bit of cloud, theme as well. Later on, I moved to architecture. And I spent seven years running architecture for forgery Group in a variety of different roles because I help customers to design. I did pre-sales with vendors. I went and overseas projects. And slowly, 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 I started to see that we may help a customer with the technology and then somehow it become a shelfware. Shelfware, if the people that listening don't understand, it's a term we have in cybersecurity. When you become or you buy a software hardware, and it's just sitting on shelf, especially in the days when we had hardware. Or we'll come to a customer and we'll try to understand what do you guys use right now? What do you guys have? And we realize they have a lot of technologies, but they're not deployed. And this was the main driver to have a podcast. By this time, I spoke with so many different vendors, I pitched with so many different vendors. I worked with enterprise customers in US, in Canada, in Europe as well, with financial customers. And you realize there's such a big gap between people buying the technology and understanding how to deploy it. And I wanted to create a podcast and Dimitri Reidman, CTO of Saibis, joined me with the journey to basically help people, what we say, understand what's there that's not covered by marketing and, and white paper. The entire podcast was, we'll ask you questions about design and architecture implementation but when people buying the solution they've more. And I had no experience in media. I had no experience in podcasting. I was actually in Israel during cyber attack in 2018. And I was in a bar, I think it was Glilot, this is were doing an event and David Sparks, I have to give credit to David Sparks was there. And I asked David, David, like you in the media for, for such a long time, how do you start? I have this idea, He's like Evgeny, why do you even think about this? Put on LinkedIn, explain your idea. And if you have people responding with positive, start the idea and I'll tell you right away, you will screw up, you will have problems, stuff will not work, don't worry about it, just move on. The advice he did give me that I still use all the time is use headphones, don't just use speakers <laughs> because it will create echo. Came back and the idea was, how about explain to people different ways to connect to the internet, outbound browsing? Even sassy term was already existed. I myself actually spoke multiple times about the idea called Beyond Perimeter. So I spoke at the local events in Toronto. I went to Palo Alto Ignite in 2017 and presented the idea Beyond Perimeter. How will you connect people to traveling? So we went with this idea to present. We created 15 questions and went to multiple vendors, the one I knew from one key resort, and asked them if they want to join. And we got a response very, very quickly. Zee Kelly, Paolo, uh, Force Point, uh, like McAfee, Checkpoint, Fortnite later on in season two, it all positively responded. The first season was one hour. We it's, a, it's a bit too long, but uh, it still was a good information for people to have. And we still have people watching the episodes from season one. Season two, we kind of ride it on a wave of COVID. And we did remote access where we have access security, and we want to have eight vendors, and we end up with 16 vendors because there was just so many vendors and so many people wanted to join. Then we pivoted a bit and did application security. Very important topic with eight, nine different vendors. And this season, it's a bit longer season, we're covering browser security and browser isolation. Very interesting topic, because if you think about this. Many of the vendors we're covering right now didn't even exist a year ago.
2: I want to go back. You mentioned shelfware. Um, since you did have a lot of these conversations, what were some of the common reasons why you know y- y- you get excited about a product, you buy it, you think it's going to change the world for you, and then it ends up on a shelf? Why is that? What What were some of the, the common traits?
1: The person that purchased the solution loved, loved, the, loved the company, was also responsible for this there was change of management. So people got the solution, but then the upper management changed, and then they change the direction. Or busy, busy, busy. We say busy, 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 we'll do it later on. Project management is one of the reasons. I'm not blaming the project managers. I'm blaming the idea that it started, but there was not enough people to manage the solution. Even during POC, I'm happy to talk about this part as well. I always tell people, you guys are always busy. If you're not going to assign the project manager to actually hunt you and make sure you're doing your work, there is a good chance that you will not able to finish the project at the POC as well. So this is some of the parts. Of course, it could happen that people start rolling the solution and they never finish rolling because priorities change. Or surprisingly, it doesn't work as, as expected. Or not everything working as expected. And we see multiple times vendors, vendors, sorry customers, with so many different technologies that are implemented seventy percent, sixty percent, eighty percent that come into working but not fully working.
0: yeah, I, to go back to your podcasts, uh, I mean, I've listened to a whole bunch of them. um and you speak to a lot of kind of established SaaS or SSC players, I'd say, uh, if we can call them established it's quite a new industry. And you speak to a number of startups as well. What what are kind of your key key takeaways from from those discussions that you've had on your podcast?
1: So we always try to have different vendors. We don't want to only only cover the big and established vendors in the industry. I'm not saying established vendors in the SaaS space because it's all SSE space because it's quite relatively new. And we always want to have a small one. The biggest difference, I guess, the oldest small one, the new one, says that whatever the established vendors are doing, it's wrong and it's absolute, and we're doing it differently. We'll have better scalability, better this, better that, AI models, and different things. And it's in a way funny because me personally think that there is a lot of changes happening right now in the industry. It's not just you buying a sexy solution these amazing graphs, we want to buy a solution, and this is my personal view. But I'm gonna continue pushing this view for a long time. We want to buy a solution that not if when it breaks, I have a customer success team, I have a good support in my zone, geographical zone, not somewhere else that, that doesn't work right now, and somebody actually come and help me, and not just appear to me and call me two months before renewal and say, "Oh, Evgeny." How about you're going to buy more of our licenses and expand because we added so many features. Where have you been for the last two years? Because in many cases, especially on the medium level, not large enterprises, the moment the salesperson sold the deal, they're gone, they move somewhere else. So There's a bit of a, there's a, bit of a difference, Jay, that uh, the small people have a better technology because they innovated faster. But it doesn't mean they're going to scale faster. They're going to scale well, and they're going to give you the support that you need when stuff will not work.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, when I was working in in my previous roles, I had no issue using kind of the new technology companies because of the innovation they portrayed and, and they brought to the table. But one of the things that I would always do, and we we built um, Nutanix, a hypervisor, and and. obviously storage platform and no one had ever heard of it when i wanted to implement it and one of the things i checked was their support was because i agree with you things break things are always going to break it's software it's hardware and things are going to fail and things are going to fall over when they do who's going to support me and and i've had instances in the past where i've spent A year, 18 months, liaising with somebody, doing a design, trying to figure out, do the architecture, look at the product. And then like the week you buy, the account manager walks away and you get given somebody else. And you're like, well, hang on a minute. I've built the relationship with this person. When this breaks, they're the person whose ass I want to kick. And they've walked off into the sunset. And I've just met someone that knows nothing about my environment. And that used to really frustrate me.
1: So you bring an interesting point. We all talk in the industry about the idea that the CISO lifespan in the co- in the company is eighteen to twenty four months. But why nobody talk about the vendor lifespan of a salesperson? If you look on LinkedIn, they all move every two years as well,
0: or less so in some cases.
1: Now back to a small vendor. The beauty of a small new vendor. Is they will listen to you more if they tell you. This is our features. And you say, but I want this, I want it to come with milk and honey. There's a good chance they're actually going to add milk and honey for the next release. Yeah. With the big companies, they'll say, Yeah, we're very happy for you. Go to don't go to a store and buy milk and honey by yourself, you know. So, so there's a bit more kind of back and forth, and you have more leverage on the small vendors.
0: And and to be honest, that was one of the reasons why I would keep my eyes and ears open when I was working in that environment and look for those new, new vendors, because you would go to, and and I'm going to name some names, but I don't want to say it's about them, but let's say you go to a Cisco and say, I want you to do this. You will get the answer. No, it's okay. Because I never worked for huge, huge companies. I didn't have the power. I mean, we may spend a million dollars a year with a vendor but the people down the road were spending 500 million. They're never going to want to change their product. They're never going to give me that that milk and honey that you talk about. I'm, and that's why working with the startups, you have to balance what support are you going to get? How good is the product? Can they scale? Are they large enough to deal with the company your size? But if they can do all of those things and you can tick those things off, then you have a good chance of them also being able to provide you some of the things that the other large vendors just aren't going to do.
2: And and to your point, Jay, um, you know, the larger companies, they, they've got to work through a process. There's a ton, a ton of bureaucracy to get that new feature made. Is it, is that feature going to sell? Does it, how does it, impl, how does it integrate with our product? Is there um, some bugs that are going to be created? Uh, the process to make that decision is, is long. Whereas a startup, they're going to pivot. They're going to pivot fast. Um, They don't have uh, the same challenges that a smaller company is. But I think the key point here is, um, and this really goes both ways, is a lot of times companies will be transactional with their vendors. And as a result, their vendors will be transactional with them. And oftentimes that doesn't turn out to be a good success. And to your point, it, it ends up being shelfware. Whereas if you partner and you come at to come at it as an approach of, of partnering and do your due diligence, um, get beyond the salesperson, get to the product manager, get to the the C level folks, uh, the people higher up in inside the company, and you view it as a partnership, I think that's where you, you gain success with a startup.
1: So I saw several large enterprises that will invest in a very early startup. With the idea that you want to buy them, buy mean buy them to implement them in the company. And the main reason to invest in them, actually calculating the financial part, they're not losing any money because they're getting a better price, because they already invest in them. And because they're an investor, they now have a way to basically understand and correct kind of influence, not correct, influence the features for themselves
2: absolutely it, it brings that startup mentality into the company i mean cisco was very successful with that several times the the classic spin out and then spin in um that they used for heck what was it uh, nsx no nsx was I'm sorry that was vmware um uh, aci was a, a classic in uh, and, and storage uh this the this the, the, the server product as well project california um these were all you know kind of spin out spin ins um but, yeah, you, you, to your point, you're seeing some companies now almost start up their own VC fund uh, where they'll go out and invest in these smaller companies and and see if, you know, they can get some success out of it. Because just trying to bring a product to market, um, I'll mention a name, Cisco, uh, you know, early days of SD-WAN, it was, it was IWAN. What happened to IWAN? It, it, it didn't go very far. Um, and as uh, so they ended up buying Viptilla, Um ended up buying Meraki. Uh, Now they have, you know, multiple flavors of of SD-WAN within their portfolio. But um, yeah, to your point, I think that's a challenge with the larger companies. And we'll see what happens, especially in the SSE SASE spaces. These larger companies start to pivot into this, you know, sector, and they bring with them a portfolio of products. Can they all integrate is it best to breed, or is it really uh you know a series of, of products that may not have uh, you know strong linkages together?
1: And from my experience, and I'm wondering what you experience, some of the larger customers enterprises may have 150 to different vendors easily. like I have a bank that I know they probably have nine around nine different endpoints, just endpoints.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess over the last 25 years, every single kind of CIO that I've ever worked for and every board that I've reported to was always talking about reducing the number of vendors. And that's always a difficult debate because, and we, we've talked about this on our podcast before, that some companies go and buy best in breed, some people want 100% solutions. And I always wanted to make sure I got the solution that fixed the problem at least 80%. And what I meant by that is if I bought something for from a Cisco or a VMware and they had something else that was 80% of what I needed to do for another area of the business, I would use it so that I could have less vendors. But if that product was only 50% of what I needed against a, say a, a risk matrix or a requirements chart, then I wouldn't take it. And therefore you, you do end up with a number of different products, because your use cases may not fit a single product. And we talk about this all the time. At the moment, we're talking about SSE, we're talking about SASE. And I'd be really, really interested to know from, from your side, because you speak to, to people about this all the time, like we talk about unified SASE all the time, we talk about one vendor doing that whole kind of framework, because to me, SASE is a framework, it doesn't it doesn't have to be a single product, but you've got people basically productizing it and saying it's a product. Do you actually think that that's gonna play out? Or are you gonna be able to have a vendor that can do SSE and SD1 together in a in a product?
1: Well, this is like five questions in one, you know. So let me go back a bit and let's quickly talk about the best of breed because I think in my mind this term become a bit strange. like We don't use different components. It's all in the cloud, pretty much. So it's all the same components, as an example. Now, maybe we should call it dedicated product because they do one things and they claim they're doing really well. But then an idea comes to mind when FireEye came to the market that is really well, the network, not prevention, that intrusion, they basically were able to understand how traffic flows and understand where the bad stuff happening. And when something real happening, they will actually raise an alarms, not for every single thing. But when HTTPS traffic increased, they become blind, blind. So as a single product that did something really well, they stop being such a good product because they are blind to 50, 60, 70, now probably 90% of the traffic. So now they need to be integrated as part of the self-decryption part, and we will lead to a conversation about SASI as well. So we need to understand this part, can you actually do the work by yourself or you have to be part of some other ecosystem that you're able to do the work well? And to your questions about sd and SASE and SSE. So let's think about this. If sd is a way for me to bring the traffic for inspection and sd is a protocol and a device that's supposed to make sure my links to my ISPs or MPLS are working and I can do failovers really well, Was it really related to the security components? Maybe, maybe if I want to do QoS, I want to ban this kind of virtualization. It's related because there is a touch. But in the main things, it's not because it's just doing two different things. Whereas I do connect in my mind is when I connect an office to a cloud provider, the the point of presence, I usually have a tunnel there. There There's no mystery. There's no magic. IPSec, GRE, whatever the protocol people use. But I don't want to have one tunnel. I want to have multiple tunnels, or maybe there is a limitation on the GRE tunnel, What is it is like 200 meg right now per tunnel. I believe so. So if my connection is one gig, now I need to have multiple tunnels going to one location, and ideally some hardware device need to make sure I have a very good quality of service. And beside this, I want I want redundancy. It means I want to have another tunnel to a different location. And this is where is the magic happening between SSE and the SD If one location goes down, can it switch to the other location? If, if the one primary location is oversubscribed, can we tell the SD box, hey, you know what? Don't ship everybody to London. Route some of the traffic to Germany or to New York, depending on the location if I'm doing under the one vendor umbrella, this is where I have much more benefits and understanding what I can do. If any of you work with Checkpoint VPN back in the days, it's like, what is it called One Click VPN? Basically between Checkpoint devices, I put a getaways there and Checkpoint will take care if the tunnel is up and down, they will do everything there. It's back in the days, but SD-WAN is like on steroids, what it can do with manipulation, but just with the traffic. Does the other end know that they can need to do an API call to actually change a tunnel? And many vendors, Netscope, Zscaler, Palo, can work with many SDLN providers. But we don't know how deep this integration goes and what happened on the next version release or version upgrade when something changed. Can it still do this? Now, should it be the same interface? <laughs> Should it be different interface? Because probably the people that will create this failover and this logic will be network engineers, and the people that decide what to block will be security people.
0: Yeah, I I mean, you pretty much echo what what I've said before. Is in my mind, I don't see how an SD-WAN configuration admin portal that you would give to your network team and an SSE-type portal that you would give to your security team, how anyone's going to put them in the same place. And in my mind, if they are separate tools on separate data lakes managed by separate people, what's the benefit of buying them from the same company? I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some benefits if we talk about cost. Maybe you'll get a better cost if you buy both, but I think the power of going down kind of a single vendor route should be ease of use, retiring that old hardware, not having to feed and water it, getting a better discount, all of those things. And I just can't fathom how, I mean, John, if, sorry, go yeah, on. Yeah, but
1: if this integration exists, so what I'm saying is, I want my security fabric and the SD-WAN. To fail over seamlessly. I don't want to go and manually do this. So, if I'm running from the same vendor, my assumption will be that they know how to talk to each other because they're coming from the same vendor. This is my only case here that I think it's important.
0: Yeah, and I I agree. So, I've seen where people have been integrated to, say, an SD-WAN. And like you've said, something changes, the SD-WAN vendor changes a firmware version or the SSE vendor changes a firmware version, suddenly that integration doesn't quite work anymore. So you would think that if they are from the same vendor, that problem would be resolved. But a lot of the vendors out there right now are buying in SD-WAN or they're buying in certain elements. And we all know that
2: that doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna work smoothly together just because they've gone and bought something, right? And it's also the backend architecture as well. I mean, if if you're building a, sys, a solution from the mid 2010s, um, are you going to have API integrations to be able to steer traffic? Um, are you going to continue that? Uh, it, and that's, I think the key piece here is, yeah, it, it's great to have a so-called single vendor solution because maybe you get strategic discounts uh maybe you have that relationship with the company maybe you do get the the good customer service when you do have an outage uh there's value there definitely and and certainly from a training aspect but the question you have to ask yourself is you know are we getting truly an integrated product because i think that's where sasi is you know, the vision of SASE is to distribute a security fabric and a network fabric closest to the edge. So when an employee is accessing an application, whether that application is in a SaaS location or on-prem, you're not having to make a decision on the dilemma of do I secure this or do I choose performance? So that's the idea here. Um, And I just haven't seen that product yet Out there in the marketplace that can accomplish Um, that—it's just a lot of, in my opinion, best of breed, uh, just packaged under one vendor, and they call that single vendor SASE. So,
1: if we put SD-WAN aside for a second, because I believe it's not the only way to bring traffic. I think think single.
2: I think SD-WAN is really policy-based routing. Okay. Uh, It is. We get. We get. We get stuck in the nomenclature of SD-WAN. SD-WAN or policy-based routing could be also NAS. It could be a networking service. Um, that's how I view it. I think we we're stuck on the terms of SD-WAN.
1: Okay. The reason I, I want to do this, because we all speak about beyond perimeter, no more perimeter. Perimeter is everywhere. So If Evgeny is home right now, and I'm home right now, and you home right now, you don't have an SD-WAN box at home. You, you may, you may get one from a SD-WAN, but you probably have an agent deployed on your laptop, that so basically going and probing the, all the cloud, per cloud uh, accesses and choosing the closest one. And I don't have the statistics, but I believe many people probably using the agent were routing the traffic through the SD-WAN box of our router to the internet. Now, this actually brings the idea of SSE, how much of importance that SSC vendor will be one and not SASE when you have multiple vendors on the framework doing something else in my mind. Because when I'm routing the traffic from my laptop to the internet, because I have to go to the internet first, and then I want to go to Facebook or I want to access my Office 365 or access a file on-prem, how this Traffic: How this packet will actually go? What will be the life of this packet, and what is going to be the latency of this packet? And if I combine remote access and album browsing <clears throat> under one solution or two separate solutions, what will happen? If it's two separate solutions, which solution will take presence, the remote access solution or my album browsing? Because I like it's routing. I need to choose. How are you going to create exceptions? So it's become an even bigger problem to understand this. I believe if it's one solution and it's all go to the same cloud and there's the magic happening in the cloud or depending on the vendor, the routing gets pushed back to the agent and it knows right away where to go. So latency is better, user experience is better as well. And if you go back to the beginning, majority of the vendors that had cloud-based web gateways were basically using a pack file. It's impossible to use right now because of all these routing decisions. And you have like a humongous one to create, and you need a very good engineer to just create these files, especially across multiple regions.
0: Yeah, I mean, you raise some really good points there. I mean, for, for me, an, an SSE solution should include everything. It should include your web gateway, your DLP, your CASB, because for me, they're not really even separate products. They're features within a product. I mean, if you are already seeing all remote access traffic and all web traffic, why wouldn't you apply DLP rules to that traffic at that point versus having separate products to do that? So for me, it's worth looking at the products out there that can do multiple things. I mean, I don't know what you think.
1: So Let's let's go deeper than this. We spoke about the idea before we started recording. What is are the most important features in SST solution. Is this the fancy UI? Is this the reporting? Like what it is. And I think there's a couple of things there. DUP is one of them. I want to make sure that whatever leaves my company, not just from my laptop, also from my organization, is only leaves when I decided I wanted to leave, not because somebody else decided to want to leave. So this is one control in SSEs that I think is very important, but an easy control. We can go probably for two hours to discuss about it, but but, but this is one part. When I browse the internet as a user in this company, I wanna make sure that basically the user is protected because I created a fancy policy that somebody wrote and has talked to compliance and I saw compliance later on on this, that the user is protected And it complied with the policy I actually wrote, that I'm able to transition the written policy to security controls in my company. I cannot access, I don't know, hacking sites, pornography sites, gambling sites, and stuff like that, or potentially put some offensive comments on the internet.
0: Yeah, I I think the biggest concern, or or the biggest thing my experience leads me to, to, to think in this instance is... I've worked in a world where I had all of those tools in, in isolation, and um, we had the castle moat design, I had mail scanning software, add DLP software, add a web scanning software, we had remote access. To me, visibility is critical in, in, in an SSE platform, because we've lost the visibility of what's going on on the LAN, because most people aren't on the LAN anymore. So you don't have those tools, those tools that you add, they don't no longer work. And even when you did have visibility of your LAN, it was all in different places. You had to to, to talk with different areas of, of the IT team, the security team. You had to dive into a different tool, and you're like, oh, it's not this tool, going to this tool, and that tool, and this tool. So for me, now that if we're talking about having your CASB and your DLP and your Secure Web Gateway and your remote access all in a tool, I want visibility across all of that. If we're talking about DLP, for instance, I want to be able to see... Did someone try and upload a file? Did they do it on remote access? Did they do it into the cloud? Where do they do it? Et cetera, et cetera. Plus, I want to look at all the user analytics as well.
1: So you mentioned that I need to know where to look. Back to our favorite topic in the industry, asset management. So I need to know which application to look. I need to able to decrypt the traffic to able to look inside. And if I cannot decrypt, it means I need to know to look in Dropbox, OneDrive. Salesforce over API back to Casby to connect and understand and navigate this information. So we need to understand the applications. I literally spoke with the customer today about SASI project. And I asked him, hey, do you really understand all your applications are running in your environment? And it's a very common question because people
2: sometimes running forward and don't really know what they're going to protect first. We can talk about the topic that
1: I want to discuss, what's missing in SSE, let's do it.
2: Let's do it, let's do it.
1: Great, so we spoke about how traffic arrives to, the, to our environment, what we're trying to protect. So we agree malware, we agree where I need to browse, we agree files. What is the common way for the traffic and files to get into the environment? Emo.
2: Email yeah, email. yeah. Uh,
1: the most common way for people to get into environment is send your URL, send you an email, send your file. So why the hell email security is not part of
2: SSE? That's a great point.
0: Yeah. It's
2: a very good one. That is I a mean, great because
0: point. I guess most companies will have a email scanner from from whichever company and i know some of the ssc vendors and some some of them do have connections with some of those other email scanning policies but they're just apis
2: um but yes you you are Yeah right. i don't i don't i don't know of a vendor right now that has an email service i mean probably point. Point. Yeah, yeah. will be you're the probably one right but you know palo yeah. zscaler cisco uh, vmware i mean no you 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 you're, you you're onto something there.
1: So let's think about this. You send me an email with the URL. When I click on the URL, the email security will probably do URL whitelisting to check if this URL is malicious or not. But what do we expect from STC platform? My security web gateway, my firewall should do the same and should prevent me to going to this location. If I send a file from inside my company outside, we're talking about back of DLP. So we already cover DOP in SAS, cover outbound DOP. Why not to cover email DOP as well as part of the same policy? And as you like to say, we want one single plane of glass of everything. Why not? Mm. As you Jay, just mentioned, many companies use API scanners for email. How is the API scanner for email different than the Cosby scanner for OneDrive? On a technology level, you know, on a very low level, it's very similar technology. The logic may be different.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of companies out there now have moved to say three six five or are using Google email. There's a very few now that are, are using kind of on-prem exchange any longer. I mean, they might run it in hybrid, but a lot of people have moved to the cloud, so it shouldn't be that complicated. To, if you're doing APIs like you said with OneDrive or SharePoint or Teams or whatever it might be, Google Docs. You should be able to have an, an API that checks emails as well, because they do it for CASB as well, right? So...
1: Yeah. And there is a number of vendors that are doing this, like Area 51 acquired acquired by CloudFront. Uh, what was there? Abnormal Security, Avanan acquired by Checkpoint. There's already a number of vendors that are already in this phase are doing API email security just by themselves, small one.
0: Yeah. So this conversation could go on for hours, and actually, we're getting quite low on time. So. I guess one question is, would you come back again and have another conversation with us?
1: I just want to say we should do part two in Absolutely. the next year. You know?
0: So I, I think we should do that. I think we're all in agreement. Um, but before you go, we're going to ask you some kind of fun questions. Um, mm-hmm. First one being something silly, like what's your favorite movie?
1: My favorite movie? Ooh. you may like it, Jay. It's Lock, Stock, and oh, Two Slotin Brothers.
0: Great film. I, I like that one. And And okay. So some a topic that's close to both mine and John's hearts. And actually, we had a call earlier where he talked about trying to make me eat snails, and that just is not happening. Um, but what's your favorite food? And please don't say snails.
1: No, not snails. Um, I'm an Israeli by heart. So it's going to be shawarma. Oh,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a win. Uh, I've, I've yet to to go over to Israel. It's a place I've always wanted to go. And every every time I have a conversation with anyone about it, they're like, the food, come for the food, come for the food.
1: Oh, yeah. Food is food, the culture, uh, the music, the nightlife. It's all amazing. So
0: obviously, you live in Canada now. You're, you're originally from Israel. Um,
2: I I assume. You-
1: Actually, originally from USSR. The okay. name oh. I moved to Israel.
2: So what What I'm sorry, what part of the USSR?
1: So I left and was still USSR. And then it became Ukraine a couple of years after. So I'm from the country that doesn't exist okay. anymore.
0: Okay, so where would your dream vacation be?
1: My dream vacation will be, wow, I don't consider myself as one place as a dream vacation. I think it's a multiple different things. And what do you do in dream vacation? I think my dream vacation, because it's a very uh, hard topic to achieve for a long time, it will be wings to jumping. Oh, cool. So... But I know it's not something you just buy a ticket and go. <laughs> you actually need to train for a long time. So I
0: know you were doing an event coming up soon. I believe it's on on a a, a, a kind of a slope. We won't call it a mountain because you live in Canada. Um, whoa, doing... whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait yes. a second! Wait
2: a second! If you're on certain parts of Canada, I mean Whistler, BC, is, there's some yes. race skiing there. The Rockies, uh, Alberta. We, I think we had a Winter Olympics there. So don't, don't, don't. There was one in Calgary, Canadians. Right? Great.
1: Yes. Yes. Oh. Yes. So yes, there was an idea last year. I was I did my snowboarding level one training as an instructor because I realized I don't know how to teach my son. And decided said, I'm going to go learn and train how to do it correctly. And I learned a lot about building blocks. It was amazing training. I was like, why is there is no conference in snow? So I posted online, had a lot of responses and learned that apparently in the past, there were some conferences in US. Checkpoint did one, somebody else did one. And I left it there. And this, this year came and I was talking to a friend that is part of a private hill near Barrie in Ontario. He's like, Evgeny, I think we can do it. And it was a couple of weeks ago and we started the process and we right now have a date. It's March 2nd, it's Thursday. We were able to have the entire mountain slash hill to ourselves with probably around 150 to 200 people. We're going to announce this. Maybe by the time it's aired, it's going to be already announced. We're now working on a sponsorship with several vendors. And we want people to have kind of balance between life and work. So they were able to enjoy the heel and also talk to their peers about cybersecurity. We're going to have some small presentations, not very, very deep, to let people enjoy, but also have a kind of good time with everyone. Yeah, I
0: mean, I really think that's a great idea because certainly the pandemic changed the way. People ran their lives, and people haven't been able to get out. People haven't been able to do networking, and I very much see the the power of networking. I went to Black Hat Europe last week, and spent a lot of time talking to people and being face to face, and I I really like that. Um, so it's a great idea. Um, I I'd love to come and join you. I'll have a look at the dates when it's released. Um, so I really appreciate you coming along. Uh, I know John does as well. It's been great to talk to you. Um, I'd really like you to come back again and and talk to us again. Um, I'd say next year, but actually that's only in a couple of weeks, but it would be really good. Um, Let me know about the event. I'll I'll keep an eye out for it on LinkedIn. Um, Certainly we'd like to attend. And and if you're happy to come back, we'll have you again. And and I really appreciate you coming.
1: Thank you. My pleasure. I really, really enjoyed today speaking with you guys. And you actually brought me some ideas that I'm thinking about this. Maybe there's a chance to do a new season, maybe not season number five, six, number six, about complete SSC vendor and the features. It'll be hard to fit them in half an hour because there are so many different features. But I think it will be very interesting because we're probably nine months away from the next Gartner Magic Quadrant Report on SSC. So it will be interesting to see what happened. But thank you for being here, and I'm definitely looking forward to come again, and I will share this about the event as soon as I have it.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.